growing up, I never really knew how I could identify. I never really knew where, what culture I belonged to. Um, I grew up mainly in an Indo-Caribbean household. I, that's like one half of my cultural identity, I guess you could say. My mom um, immigrated here in the 70s from Trinidad. This is poet Desiree McKenzie. When I spoke to her last January, I asked her what inspired her peace roots, which you're about to hear in a second. I think now, though, that inspired isn't quite the right word. That it never is in cases like this. Inspiration isn't quite the same as exploration, as an attempt to understand things as nuanced as cultural identity. It's a never-ending attempt at understanding yourself and all the complexity that comes with that. And for Desiree, who is a wonderful, wonderful spoken word artist, this piece Roots is her first step into the spoken word community that she now inhabits so singularly and so beautifully at that. Through my exposure in the spoken word community, which I'm so grateful for, um, I, I got this sense that, that poets have such a sense of belonging in their cultural identity and who they mm. are. Um, and I just, I knew I needed to figure that out to be able to express myself and, and honor my, um, and honor that, honor my ancestry, honor the roots and like being a sort of racially ambiguous person, all growing up, all constantly getting the, what are you? What are you? Are you that? Are you? What, what's going on? What, you know, that whole question, um, I, I, I was kind of getting tired. And then I also wanted to be able to express, express that through my work. So this is kind of my first exploration of that. Yeah. Looking back, Desiree calling it her quote unquote, first exploration of this sort of thing is especially interesting, considering the nature of the imagery in her poem Roots. True to the title, one thing that I really loved about this poem is the contextual specificity of the language used. Desiree talks of petals, she calls the suburbs she grew up in a vase. And my personal favorite is when she refers to some roots being given, quote unquote, pesticides of privilege. And having her frame it for me as her first exploration of this kind of complex subject adds even more weight to the imagery of using a potted plant as a visual and more weight to the act of writing about one's roots in whatever definition it might be used in. While, of course, there's no universal experience of being a hyphenated Canadian Desiree's peace touches upon having to explore your roots, to wrestle with it, to water it, to attend to it, just to have that understanding of who you are and everything else that preceded you becoming you in this current moment. And a lot of hyphenated Canadians live with this kind of history, whatever the nature of that history might be, however it might manifest for oneself and not the other. So with this in mind, my name is Trisha Gregorio, I am one of the hosts of the Living Hyphen podcast, and today we're hearing stories about earth, land, dirt, what it means to be repotted, replanted, what it means to recognize your native soil and to be connected to or disconnected from it. All these different ways to explore our earth and our roots and all the literal and metaphorical definitions that it could have. Up first, here's Desiree McKenzie with Roots. If we're talking about roots, I identified as a potted plant for majority of my life. Just a stem taken from somewhere else, put in new soil meant to be called home, and all my life I failed to see the roots that made me, that gave me these one-of-a-kind colors and these one-of-a-kind petals masking my beautiful smell with notes of embarrassment because I smelled so different. I tried to deny that part of me, but shit. 
It's true when they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because this racial ambiguity was just playing tag with the heritage right in front of me and I could try to deny it. And that's what they wanted me to do. Except flaunt my pedals as a party trick when they wanted me to. I had the rhythm they wanted so bad. I'd lead crowded parties like it was a dance class swaying in the wind. I was just another Christmas poinsettia left out to dry after New Year's, after the sun came up, after I couldn't be a source for their oohs and ahs. I went in and out of season so quickly for them. And I was so special. And they wanted to be special too. Like utter the N-word. So I dulled the thorns the word carried so it wouldn't sting in their mouths. They could carry it between their teeth and do a tangle with it if they wanted to because they marveled at the way my petals blossomed, but no one wanted to water me. Look at my care instructions and read it carefully. Maybe it's because these roots seem so scary. No one wants to dig deep, see its ancestry, its history, and neither did I. For my nice house in the suburbs, my vase, so to speak, I felt as though I didn't belong. I was just a genetically modified version of my mother. I'll never know her struggle. She is a rose breaking through concrete, the gated fences of Trinidad streets, my father, a patch of yellow grass in Verdun, a new plant species that everyone just labeled a weed, but still here I am, a product of a whole lot of struggle. The light at the end of a very long tunnel, the first sign of life after a long, harsh winter, but what does that mean? If these roots were given special treatments and pesticides of privilege, so yeah, if we're talking about roots, I'm a potted plant soaked in Trinidad light, beautiful under Barbados sunsets, resting in a cold Montreal winter and dancing with a Panamanian breeze. So my mother tells me I have to dig deep, excavate actually, Face the truth of these roots and all their implications because this vase can't hold me forever and I've come to learn that there is a world beyond my windowsill and sometimes all that sunshine isn't all mine. So yes, I'm a potted plant of privilege, patience, and purity, but I know I belong to a garden of so much more. One thing you should know is that I'm the kind of person who never cared for plants. Ask any of my friends, they'll tell you I never owned a single plant except for a bamboo stick because it's the only thing I could keep alive because it didn't need a lot of love or care. You met her in the Homestuck episode, but let me introduce her again. This is Justine Abigail Yu, founder and editor-in-chief of Living Hyphen, and in her own words, a total plant mama. Because, like a lot of folks during this pandemic, Justine turned to indoor gardening as a way to cope with this global chaos. On my part, I think I've always felt a tiny, tiny amount of jealousy towards people who are able to grow entire gardens. Even though I know, logically, that like all things, taking care of plants is something that can be learned, something that you can gradually get better at, I think there's a level of care, of capacity for care that I attach to people with green thumbs. Something more intrinsic than being able to Google, how much should I water my plant? Or what's the best plant to buy if you live in an apartment? So it's fascinating for me to hear that Justine's own apartment has become a bit of a jungle. 
Enough, too, that this plant craze is what prompted her to conceptualize the theme of this episode, digging roots. So this is going to sound like such a cliche, but it's really been a beautiful journey with my plants. I just never had the time for them, but since the pandemic, I bought a bunch of these plants and learning to care for them has really taught me a lot about mindfulness, about patience, about care and nurturing. And while I've been planting and growing my precious plant babies, I realized just how similar we humans actually are to plants. So I'll tell you a story. While repotting my plants last summer, I learned all about the root system, how careful you must be when moving a plant into new soil, how that experience of being literally uprooted can be so traumatic for so many plants that if it's not done properly, if you're not caring for them gently, or if it's not tended to with enough attention, that plant might not actually survive. A few of mine have died. It made me realize just how those of us who are from a diaspora or who have been displaced are exactly the same. To be uprooted from the soil, from the very earth that we originally came from is a traumatic experience. And we need to be given proper care, love, attention, nourishment, and nutrients in order to truly flourish in our new soil, in our adopted homelands, and the new environments we find ourselves in. But there's a resilience in there too, you know? I like that word. Resilience. It's a word I've always applied in my head, first and foremost, to the trees I loved growing up. The Nara trees in my kindergarten textbooks, the Baobab tree planet and the Little Prince, the maple trees that felt so foreign before I moved to Canada. Huge, hulking trees, impressive in their strength and their immovability. Yet also, I realized growing up, just like any other plant, in need of the same water, the same sunlight, the same nutrients without these eclipsing their resilience. We, as people too, like plants, sometimes take anything we can. Even if it is the very bare minimum, for better or for worse. We make the best out of what we have. And somehow, not only do we survive, we grow. Up next, we have Natasha Ramutar, who will be reading a couple of her poems for us and speaking with Justine about her book, Bittersweet, released by Moenzi House back in September 2020. Here we go. My name's Natasha Ramatar, and this piece is called Earth. Not quite like the earth, pulled from their native soil, repotted, replanted, transplanted to a new environment that didn't quite take. Roots nipped, encroached by the local flora, encroaching on local flora, as experts report. Roots too foreign for here, but too tender for the spoiled soil of home. A little one who eventually stayed with roots reaching for the center of the earth, molten and comforting, that couldn't shake the feeling of not quite belonging, even after generations and generations.
Natasha, thank you so much for sharing your story with Living Hyphen here on our podcast, but also in general. Um, you know, you were one of our first contributors our, in our inaugural issue, and it's just been so wonderful to be your friend over these last couple of years, but also to see you grow as a writer and to see all of the incredible things that you have been up to. Of course, one of the big things is your book, your collection of poetry, Bittersweet. I recently read it and am just in awe as usual of your work. I adored how you wove in and out of stories from Scarborough while also tracing memories of your faraway homelands. I thought it was done just so seamlessly. And you took us from one place to another without explanation, without missing a beat really. And it just felt really emblematic of what it means to live in between cultures that, you know, all of these people and places and memories just live within us. And there's not necessarily a sequence of when certain memories will come up or certain feelings will come up. And I just felt bittersweet had all of that. And just wanted to share that with you because I don't think we've actually had a chance to speak about it. But I wanted to to ask you to just generally start off with telling us about the journey of creating this collection. What was the inspiration behind it and what really sparked this collection of poetry? It was a kind of accidental project, I think, in many ways. Um, and so over the course of uh, you know a number of years, I had been writing different poetry pieces. And also I kind of came from a place that uh, I was more of a fiction writer and nonfiction writer than I was a poet. And so I had been creating these pieces, kind of leaving them in my Google Drive folder, not really paying attention to them. And it was only towards the end of my master's program. So I was in a master of professional communication program. So not necessarily anything specific to creative writing at the time. It was only towards the end of that, that I was looking in my folder and um, realizing that there was a theme that was running throughout these pieces. And I think in the kind of earlier days when I was writing these pieces, I didn't think of them as connected. So for example, I didn't think of the pieces in Scarborough having anything to do with the pieces about thinking about homeland in a very sometimes mythical way, sometimes literary way, very abstract overall, I would say. And so a lot of me putting to, together this collection was it clicking into place that these pieces were connected. Uh, and it didn't matter as well that there wasn't a kind of clean timeline of these pieces that I could attach all of these poems to. And so being okay with the idea of, you know, a nonlinear chronology as the structure of this, this collection was, was something that really, um, really helped me put it together. And then also just, you know, the idea of it not having to be also very definitive truths. So there being space for wonder and space for imagination where there might be gaps in, let's say, what you would think of as historical documentation. You've spoken previously about the double migration that your family has experienced first from South Asia and then to Guyana and then now to Canada, what we now know as Canada. And I think that terminology of double migration is really interesting to me or something that just really stays with me because it's not something that I, maybe it's a personal thing, I don't want to generalize, but it's something that I haven't thought about because my family has mostly 
um, migrated from one place, from the Philippines. And I can't imagine what that double migration is like. And so I was curious to hear a little bit more about that from you, especially in the context of this poem of earth, you know, of being transplanted and being repotted in a new place and a new environment. If you could just share a little bit more about, about that double migration in your family. One thing that I think about in terms of the double migration is just how it can often make folks in the diaspora feel even further away or even more displaced. I'm going to use that as, as a term here, but I don't know if it's perhaps the correct term to use in, in this case. But the idea that, you know, you might have documentation for a certain number of generations back, but when you go further back, there's no longer a kind of paper trail that you're able to follow because of because of the nature of indentured servitude and indentured labor that folks who were of South Asian or Indian descent uh, would have taken to get to the Caribbean. And I think another thing there is, you know, there are certain things that are still preserved in our culture um, that serve as touch points to, I think, what often gets framed as a quote-unquote mythical homeland and that kind of idea in our language, often in religion, in cultural kind of dances and folk songs and stories and things like that. So there are definitely touch points, but also in a kind of modern version of South Asia, knowing that that place hundreds of years ago might not exist in the same way. And so the whole idea of like a kind of homecoming, as you would call it, perhaps, uh, is something that's really, I think, in my own view, unattainable in the context of a double migration. And I think, you know, as migrants, acknowledging and understanding that we are on Indigenous land and that we are settlers to a new place. And especially in the kind of context of a, of a double migration. So knowing that even perhaps being displaced yourself, uh, that you are also displacing people. Also, one other thing that I want to kind of touch on um, that I've mentioned in interviews before, even the idea of the kind of mythical homeland can be very problematic in the idea that you know, you can return to a place and it's supposed to give you something or you're supposed to return to a place and become whole. That that kind of idea is something that I also wanted to work through and work against in this collection. So moving away from the idea of fragmented and more towards collage. As someone who has definitely aspired for that mythical homeland, Natasha, um, <laughs> that resonates so much in that, yeah, I can pinpoint exact moments in my life when I have returned home to the Philippines. And it happens multiple times, you know, not just this one big adventure of going back home after a number of years, but almost every time I do go back home, there is, you know, there's a little feeling um, of that mythical homeland and of hoping or longing that it will bring me something or connect the dots in some way and doesn't necessarily do so. Um, so I think it's just really interesting for you to note that and a really important fact too, to, for us, for those of us who are part of a diaspora to sit with these pieces as 
part of the whole and not as fragments. I think that is so beautiful. So thank you for, for highlighting that. I also just wanted to make a note of so much of your writing is rooted in the earth and in nature. And I wanted to ask you if you could share a little bit more of that and where that comes from for you personally. So I think like many, many other poets, uh, some nature is something that I've always kind of gravitated towards writing about. In particular, waterways are something that I think about, especially in terms of migration. The idea that you have to cross oceans to get uh, across to the place you're going. But another thing that I think um, when I think about nature is that it's always been a really big part of my life in Scarborough. And so Scarborough is such an interesting place because we, we kind of have a little bit of everything. There are the urban spaces. So, you know, the mall, um, industrial sections of, of our suburb. But then the other side of it is that the Rouge Valley is, is so close. Um, so you have the Rouge Valley and kind of the north end. And then on the southern end, you have the kind of boardwalk and um, you have the bluffs and, and that kind of thing. These kind of natural spaces, I think, have always been you know, we think about them as a bit of a duality. So you either have an urban setting or a natural setting, but I think they've always been something that's been intertwined in my life, uh, especially growing up in a place like Scarborough. I was thinking, you know, so many of the titles in your collection, the titles of the poems are points in a map. They're very cartographical. A couple are directly named cartography one and two, and a lot of them are named after points in nature, like woods and water or earth, like you read for us earlier. And there are others that are, you know, specific points in a map, you know, like Brimley, which is a road here in, here in the GTA or in Scarborough. And you strike such a balance between that urban and that natural setting. And I was wondering if that was intentional on your part, or did that happen organically in this collection for you? Mm -hmm. For me, a lot of moving against kind of geographical points or using geographical points in relation to this natural imagery or natural titles uh, and tying those together was in a way also attempting, I think, I'm not sure if I did it successfully, um, but attempting to push against uh, that kind of colonial barrier or colonial construct of mapping and also trying to to have a more personal way of drawing out and leading someone somewhere. So I think with, uh, with Brimley all the way south, getting a chance to take the reader on a very familiar journey for me um, and having them being able to see it through, through the kind of pathway that we would take. I love having this conversation with you because, of course, reading any work from any artist, you have your own interpretation, you have your own understanding, but it is so wonderful to get to hear from you personally and to hear the intentionality behind all of the work that you did with this book. Mm -hmm. Something also that I, I would like to leave as a, a kind of ending thought with this collection um, is that it's about migration, but I think it's also entrenched in thinking about settler colonialism as well and uh, our place as migrants um, to acknowledge that and to work against that. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that and for acknowledging that and reminding all of us of that. 
And I wanted to end just saying thank you, but also I know you'll be reading one more poem for us. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Once again, my name is Natasha Ramtar, and this second piece is called So Sweet As Us. We were once lavender, roots reaching for one another below the dirt, our perfume coating each tendril of air. We were once royalty in these fields, stretching across imposed borders unabashed in our movements. We could have taken it all, swallowed every lupin, Subsumed each blade of grass, laid each heavy lidded poppy to rest. Do you remember when we were lychee? Our leather spiked skin jostling in the hands of old world primates. Summer born sweethearts at full bloom before the clouds gathered and the sky sobbed for days. Remember this, sister. When your teeth pierce the rust-red shell and the juice pools below your tongue, that nothing can dull a taste so sweet as us. Today's theme, Digging Roots. For the last act of this episode, we have Michaela Camo, also known as Just Mickey, a Canadian Acadian and Métis poet and musician with her piece Imposter Syndrome. In it, Michaela grapples with claiming their Indigenous identity as their own. As someone with, in their own words, a degree of white privilege, they don't quite have the same lived experience as other Indigenous folks. And as such, there are times when they don't feel like Métis culture is theirs to claim. Wanting to learn more about that side of her family, Michaela told me, feels almost like appropriation. Or like she's an outsider. A visitor. I was wondering if you can maybe take me through the moments, or I guess more broadly, the thought process that led to the conception of this piece. The inspiration for this piece was actually a very specific moment. And I actually, funnily enough, felt a lot of imposter syndrome just writing this piece, um, <laughs> which was kind of funny. But what happened was uh, some friends of mine were hosting these sharing circles. And um, one of my friends was from Australia and was really involved in like getting into sweat lodges here and just like getting really, yeah, um, involved with the indigenous community to Nova Scotia, the Mi'kmaq people. And like, I had been for a while really wanting to learn about foraging, but I wanted to do it not from Google, but to learn from an elder who was from here. And so, but a lot of me felt really weird about looking into that history. I didn't know if I could approach learning about 
make my history as an insider or as an outsider, as a visitor or as someone who's learning about their past. So I, I have like a very, like the term you use, hyphenated experience with it, but like, I didn't even feel, I felt, I didn't even feel like that was, I was allowed to have that as part of my hyphen just because I, I have a lot of white privilege. I'm, I'm very, like, I didn't feel any of the, I, I don't feel affected, but I did want to learn and connect to those roots because I know a lot about, you know, my mother's side of the family. And I know a lot about that story, but not so much about my dad's side. And so when we were in the sharing circle, my friend sang a traditional song and it just moved me to tears. It was so beautiful. And I remember also feeling really jealous, <laughs> a lot of jealousy. And I was like, who, where, how, like, how are you, where are you connecting? Like, how are you, like, how is it that you can like connect to this music? And I don't even know where the door is, like, let alone the key to learning about this kind of stuff. And so I just felt very, just not really sure how to learn about it, I guess. So I was just feeling a lot of maybe frustration, wanting to learn about my history, wanting to learn about my, my roots, but not really feeling even like it was, I didn't, I didn't even feel like it was appropriate for me to want to learn about it. Okay, I'm ready whenever you are. Feeling imposter syndrome with my own heritage because I look like my mother. That's an Irish baby if I've ever seen one. I love my mama. But I don't love this feeling, this feeling that learning about my Métis roots is somehow appropriation. I have a friend who said someone told him he only wanted to identify as Métis to get cheaper smokes. <laughs> he doesn't even smoke. I spoke French with a stutter, saying, I'm not that Acadian, because I don't look like my grandmother, my grandmère, who taught me to step dance and play the spoons, and who is on her own journey of finding herself and reconnecting to her Métis roots. No wonder I have felt uprooted. I felt so disconnected from my Métis ancestors that I didn't even bother apologizing for not being enough in that regard. I told my grandmère about my apprehension about identifying as part Métis, and this eternal question of enoughness. She wasn't offended I wanted to learn about my history, so why am I concerned that you might be? Maybe it's shame, I feel that it took me this long to ask. But I don't think the shame is mine. They didn't teach us to ask. We all come to learn about our past in our own time. So I don't need to apologize for this desire to learn who I am. So I'll leave this shame behind and let the mushrooms consume it, turning it into sweet soil to grow new dreams. Step into myself, step into rebirth. I'm an Irish-Scottish witch, a Métis forager, and I'm an Acadian voyager, and I'll heal the pain of my ancestors as I connect deeply 
to the earth. My poems are often about my duality, my two selves. But I had put half of me on a hidden shelf. He grew dusty. My bones grew rusty until I dipped them into the water, until I sunk them into the earth, until I learned about my father, until I foraged my heart from within the folds and listened to the stories my grandmère told. Where are we, Mi'kma'ki? Thank you. Sorry? I don't know how to respond, but I'm glad to be here. It feels like home. This has been the Living Hyphen Podcast. Living Hyphen is a community exploring the experiences of hyphenated Canadians. You can visit us on livinghyphen.ca Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram via at living hyphen, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash living hyphen. Thank you to Rising Youth for making this season possible, and special thanks to Desiree McKenzie, Natasha Ramatar, and Michaela Camo for sharing their beautiful poems with us this episode. You can find more about them in our show notes. Our music is from the Blue Dot Sessions. And to you for listening to our stories, Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.